Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is a special mini-sode. A mini-sode. A mini-sode. Of crime Or a bonus. Or a bonus. Yeah, we could call it a mini-bonus whatever episode. A but that's a episode. that's like a long name for a short thing. That's <laughs> what she said. said. <laughs> okay. But we had two things to update. We figured we'd throw them together in one episode rather than... Um, like stick them because it's going to be longer than like an introduction to another show. You know, like you sometimes we update at the beginning of a show, but right. And also because both of them are newsworthy, we wanted to get them up. Yes, they're in the news. In the news, wasn't that on the Electric Company Zoom? Uh, I don't remember one of those shows in the news. So episode eighteen, Logan yeah. Marr, the very sad, tragic story of Logan, and you have an update. On yes, that. I do have an update. It was just in the paper a few days ago. If you remember, if you haven't listened to the episode, then you have to listen to it. Yeah. So, you, so because we don't want to have to go through the whole nah. thing just to do an. But update. Logan Marr was the little five-year-old girl that was murdered by her foster mother. She had a younger sister, if you remember. Bailey. If you Bailey. Bailey Charest. So what I'm going to do is just read the story that was in the Kennebec Journal, written by Betty Adams, because it's easier than... The legendary Betty Adams. Yeah, Betty. Betty. I've never met Betty, but I... I you feel I like know you know her. I know her byline, yes. So byline Augusta. Or not Dateline. byline. Sorry. Dateline. Byline is the name of the reporter. Dateline is the I time. meant to say Dateline. I know you did now you have to read it like Keith Morrison, like I in a can't. Keith Morrison. I know I can't either. I can't read it, <laughs> but that's sarcastic. Like, ooh, yeah. Augusta money the state put into a trust account for the surviving sister of Logan Marr, the five-year-old girl who died at the hands of her foster mother, is now being used for college. Bailey Charest, 18, a senior at Lewiston High School, where she is an honor student, a member of the National Honor Society, and a captain of the swim team, got a judge's okay this week to use the bulk of the $173,000 funding to go to Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida, where she will study marine biology and environmental science to do coastal conservation eventually. Charest shared her emotionally charged college essay about the loss of her sister, saying that Logan is her inspiration in gaining entrance to Eckerd College. And I, even though they did post it online, her essay, I didn't read it. Sorry. Sorry, Bailey. I'll read it sometime. Eh, you're not the college admissions officer. As much as I would love to feel her touch, I know she is in a place with no pain or suffering. Ah, ah, that was a quote. Oh, Charest wrote in her essay, <laughs> quote, she is the reason I wake up every day to fill my own shoes while attempting to fill a pair for her. The money for Charest was part of a settlement that ended a lawsuit brought by Christy Raposa, the girl's mother, against the state. Raposa, now Christy Darling, sued to recover damages suffered as a result of Logan's death January 31st, 2001. Logan and Bailey had been taken away from Darling, then known as Christy M. Baker, and placed at a series of foster homes before being moved to Sally Ann Schofield's home in Chelsea. At the time, Schofield was a supervisor in the State Department of Health and Human Services, and the placement violated state rules. Coincidentally, Schofield, now 55, who was convicted of reckless 
or criminally negligent manslaughter and the suffocation death of five-year-old Logan was released from prison 10 days ago. She had been sentenced to do an initial 17 years in prison with three years suspended while she serves four years probation. With good time and other credits, Schofield spent about 15 years behind bars. She now lives in Thorndike. In the meantime, Charest of Lewiston is looking forward to her June 9th high school graduation and going to Eckerd. While she is grateful the money will allow her to attend the college of her choice, she said, I would a hundred times over replace every cent for my sister. Now I'm going to start crying. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. The trust fund was made possible by 2003 legislation introduced by then state rep Stavros Mendros. Republican of Lewiston. It allowed Logan Marr's mother to sue the Department of Human Services for civil damages up to $400,000 for Logan's death while she was in the department's custody. It specified the proceeds had to be deposited with a third-party trustee and could be used for post-secondary educational expenses for a sibling of Logan Marr. Otherwise, the money had to go to the state's Victims' Compensation Fund to pay claims based on a crime against a child. The actual settlement amount was $221,849 with $48,529 going to Clifton Fuller, the attorney who represented Darling in both the state and federal Maybe lawsuit. Bailey ought to be going to law school. Well, you know, they get their money. I know. They the remaining $173,000 thousand three hundred and twenty dollars was designated for logan mar's sister with the condition requiring that she begin post-secondary education by the time she turns 28. charest had to get a judge's approval to spend the money for college part of the documentation she submitted includes the college's offer of a twenty one thousand dollar annual merit scholarship justice william stokes who is one of the prosecutors at schofield's non-jury trial signed the order wednesday in augusta indicating that the camden national Bank can disperse money for tuition and living expenses for Charest with the course fees sent directly to the college. It requires her to maintain at least a 2.0 grade point average as well. I'm Doable. Sure. Yeah. The state, through Assistant Attorney General Susan Herman, signed off as well. The state was a party to the case that was settled that resulted in the trust fund being created, said Tim Feely, spokesman <laughs> for the Maine Attorney General's office. I always think I'm Mr. Feely. Uh, Sorry. What was Mr. Feeling? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh, yes, yes. I couldn't remember. That was why the court inquired at this juncture and what is standard when the case involves a minor. Shress was two years old when her sister suffocated to death, wrapped in more than 42 feet of duct tape, some of it covering her mouth. The girl was bound to a high chair and left alone in an unfinished area of the basement of Schofield's Chelsea home. The only memory I have of her is the last day of life, Shares said in an interview Friday. I have flashbacks. I've had them since I was young. I remember her getting dragged down to the basement. I remember her crying and the light flickering because of a snowstorm. In her college essay, she describes her recurring nightmare of hearing blood-curdling scream coming from the small, dark-haired girl and a woman's voice saying, Stop this now. I cannot handle this anymore. <laughs> Charest says she's sitting nearby on a rug and trying to remain unnoticed as the woman leaves a sobbing child to the basement. All is quiet at first. Then a violent scream starts. It is heart-wrenching. Finally, the saddest sound. I hear the little girl's voice for the last time, and it is the word help. Charest writes the aftermath as well, the national spotlight that Logan's death brought to the state and the re-examination of the state's child placement policies. Being the survivor of this horrid incident, 
I push myself to my limits and strive for excellence in everything for both of us. Sharest excels in her schoolwork and her swimming. I swim backstroke and went to the state championship meet three years out of the four and in work. She holds a part-time job in retail and has lived on her own since last summer. Before that, she had lived with her father, Richard Charest, and her brother. I'm just a driven person, and I just try to take everything one step at a time and focus on my schoolwork, my job, and my future, Charest said. The fact that my sister gave me this ability to do something great, I don't want to take it for granted. If anything, this is a way for her memory to live on. Charest settled on her ocean study career path just recently. I love the ocean, she said, adding that she travels there when she can on nice days in the summer. I wanted to do it since I was four years old. I had changed my mind a couple times in the past summer, and I actually went back to it, and it just stuck. Well, thanks, Betty Adams. for. So th- that is a something good that came out of that, although I do think that she probably deserved a hell of a lot more money. I think so. Considering that it was the state's... Not just, Sally Ann Schofield murdered the child. But the state was complicit. The state was complicit in not checking like they should have. And, frankly, breaking the rules and allowing someone that wasn't supposed to foster a child do it. She wasn't, if they had followed they their own rules. They broke a lot of rules. Yeah, if they had followed their own rules in the first place, she wouldn't have been in that home. So, anyways, if you haven't listened to that episode, episode 18. 18. Yeah, and I think one thing about this is I know Bailey was raised in large part by her dad, but I'm sure her mom, who's a very caring an intelligent person also had an impact on her upbringing. And it kind of just goes to show that the DHHS's assessment that these little girls weren't fit to live with the family that, that you know, w- that they originated from is off. Look at what a, what a good, fine young woman Bailey's turned into. And that Who knows despite, what Logan would have been. Despite a, what I would consider a really bad start, being in these yes. foster homes, and whatever she remembers or doesn't remember, that's a real thing. Her her vision of what happened to her sister is a real thing to her. And the reason she got out of that home was because of her sister's death. And if her sister had not died, who knows how long they would have been in foster care. They would have been in care forever. They would have been in care. Because they were about to be taken away from their mother. Right, and then thrown out at 18 into the world, and I don't know. And they could have been in, I mean, they could have ended up in a good home after Sally Schofield. But who knows, if Sally Schofield had not killed Logan... Who knows how long well, those, Sally was going to adopt, adopt them. them. So who knows how long those girls would have been. And even if she and, hadn't killed them, she obviously wasn't a great mom. Ugh, God. So thanks for that update, and we'll uh, yes. and we'll now update I'm all more. Riled up again. I know. Okay, I know. so you have an update. Yes, and this may get people riled up too. In the Anthony Sanborn case, which was episode, he was he episode twenty two. Anthony Sanborn was let out on bail after 27 years in prison for a murder on Portland's waterfront. And the reason he was let out on bail, just very quickly, was because the state had withheld all sorts of evidence from... That's another one you got to listen to. That's a, this is a, and this is a not, we're going to be doing another, uh, yeah, at this least is, one more has episode. A lot of, I mean, a lot has happened since that episode a couple yes. of weeks ago. The thing that happened most recently, and it's very quick, is the prosecution asked Judge Joyce Wheeler to recuse herself because of two statements she made at Sanborn's bail hearing in April. She mentioned at one point that the star witness in the 1992 trial, Hope Katie, who was 13 when the murder took place, 16 at trial, legally blind and deaf, but claimed she saw what <laughs> happened, 
and that information she was legally blind and deaf was withheld from the defense at the time, the judge said, I would never have used her as a witness. Yes. The other thing the judge said in April that was part of the recusal request was she said to Sanborn, I can't apologize to you now because this is just a bail hearing. Both the prosecution and the victim's family felt that that showed the judge wasn't going to be fair because she obviously felt there was something to apologize to Tony Sanborn for. I would say, I mean, and this is my interpretation of it, obviously, that she wasn't necessarily apologizing because she felt an innocent man had gone to prison. She was apologizing because his trial in 1992 was a farce because yes. of the amount of because the evidence justice withheld. system he didn't get his constitutional and right to a fair trial. And the next part of my update, I'm going to refer to and read from a Portland Press Herald story because they have summarized it. But one, one thing I want to say is I've read in both the Press Herald and other places or heard in the news them say, you know, Amy Fairfield claims evidence was withheld and that type of thing and alleges that the fact that evidence was withheld was determined at the bail hearing. Yeah. So it's, it's not, not an allegation. It's just like if you're convicted of murder, then, then you don't you don't say, right. we don't he, say he, he allegedly. Right. He was let out on bail in April because evidence was withheld. Now the determination is whether he will, he'll get a new trial or his conviction will be overturned. So there's no, it's there's no alleged there's about. There's no alleged. It, it, it has been proven, and, uh, and, and that's just a, proven that, in court. That's just a editing note, but an important editing note. It's, it's be, creating a perception. It's creating a perception that that what Fairfield spent a year pursuing is in question. And it's not because he wouldn't have been out. And by the way, we have tried to, we have been in contact with her, but I have. She just hasn't had time with everything going on. To she, she agreed to to clear up some stuff. She agreed to talk to us, but she hasn't had time yet to do it. And um, I mean, we we appreciate that. I know, I know. Um, We don't know if it's going to be on the air or not, but we'll. In any case, we may. We'll definitely have more updates. But the more interesting latest thing is one of the investigators. James Daniels, who was the lead investigator, after the bail was granted in April, and as this has moved forward, turned over recently two boxes of evidence that was in his attic all along. He turned them over on April 26th. It's not clear how long he had had them. The story broke on May 2nd, and Fairfield has filed a new filing. If that's online, we'll put it on our website that in the boxes, she found original witness statements, original police reports, photographs of alternative suspects, and what appeared to be physical evidence, including a knife and a box cutter. And I think we said before, the knife hadn't been found, and we don't know if this is a knife that was used in the murder. She also asserts that handwritten investigative notes turned over by Daniel's partner, Daniel Young, shows that Daniels, James Daniels, lied on the witness stand at Sam Bourne's 1992 trial. Ah about who was shown photo lineups during the early moments of the investigation. So, I'm going to read from a May 2nd Portland Press-Herald story by Matt Byrne. Okay, it says, During the trial, workers from Bath Iron Works, and Bath Iron Works had a dry dock down on the Main State Pier where Jessica Briggs, um, they found 
two shoes, cigarettes, and a big pool of blood and drag marks, and then found her under the pier later in the day. But during the trial, workers from BIW testified about seeing a woman who was apparently Briggs walk across Commercial Street, which goes down parallel to the harbor, toward the pier around midnight, pushing a bicycle with the young man at her side. I thought the young man was pushing the bicycle. Oh, she was pushing. Well, I don't know if that's, this could be misinterpreted, but anyway. BIW's second shift had just let out, and a charter bus was idling near the entrance to the pier to take workers back to the bath area, which is about half an hour from Portland, 45 minutes. Documents from the trial say, Police interviewed and turned over information about three interviews with workers who were on the bus that night. But Fairfield says, it has here alleges, but I'm going to say says, that notes provided by Young show they interviewed at least 11 people. One of them was John Esquinney, the bus driver, who saw a third person walking ahead of Briggs and her companion. Hmm. Esquinney worked with a police sketch artist to develop a composite of the man, but the sketch was never turned over to the defense at trial and had never been seen by Sanborn's attorneys until Fairfield viewed it April 28th. Fairfield said she had been looking for that composite sketch ever since she took on Sanborn's appeal in 2016. She must have been pissed. Quote, I think that could be the end-all, be-all, she said. A story published June 1st, 1989 in the Evening Express, that was the afternoon newspaper yes, in Portland, I remember the Evening Express described one. how police had prepared a sketch of someone seen on the pier with Briggs that night, but they did not release it or indicate whether they believed the person in the sketch was the man who killed her. And we'll put a picture of that on our website. It is also not clear whether the sketch provided in the court documents this week is the same sketch described in the Evening Express story. Hmm. Also described in the new filings is a segment of video footage that was altered and edited before it was disclosed Hmm. to the defense. In the filing, Fairfield describes how a roughly 10-minute segment was prepared by a news crew at WCSH-TV, that's Channel 6 here in Portland, shortly after Briggs was killed. The segment had six parts, but the copy of the footage turned over to the defense in the case was reproduced without audio, and it omitted the final part. The original and unedited newsreel has been turned over to Fairfield, she wrote, and the six deleted scene showed Portland Police Detective Young interviewing BIW employees on the bus back to Bath. At trial, Daniels said he did not show any photo lineups to people on the pier because they all said they could not identify anybody. Hmm. But the handwritten notes by Young appear to contradict this testimony directly. Now, remember, it's James Daniels was the lead investigator. Daniel Young was his It's very confusing. I know. If that was fiction, you couldn't do that because you can't have confusing names. At the top of one page, Young wrote photo series number two with a list of names of potential witnesses and the reactions to viewing a lineup. Later on in the notes, a page is titled, Lineup is Shown, with six entries. Two are names, including Ingalls, and George Ingalls was a friend of Tony Sanborn's that played a part in all this. Another witness, and a friend of Briggs interviewed by police at the time. The other four entries are all five-digit numbers. Hmm. Fairfield also reiterates allegations that she can prove that police have more extensive knowledge of accusations of rape against a key witness who testified against Sanborn. Gerald Rossi was in his 30s when Briggs was killed and was a close friend and roommate of Sanborn. At trial, Rossi testified that after the killing, Sanborn confessed to her murder on three occasions. But Fairfield alleges that police had received information. That bugs me. That police had received information that multiple underage girls had reported that Rossi drugged and raped them, including Michelle Lincoln, a friend of Sanborn's at the time of the murder, who later married him in 2012. Both Daniels and then Assistant Attorney General Pam Ames 
now an attorney in private practice in Waterville, did not return a call for comment Monday. Hmm. Is, that's the Press Herald. I think we should call A phone Canadians. number for Young could not be located. I'm scared of her. A spokesman for Attorney General Janet Mills said her office had no intention of litigating the case in the media. We will present our position on the issues to the court at the appropriate time, Timothy Feely said. Feely. Feely. In written affidavits submitted in April, both Daniels and Young denied allegations of coercion and hiding evidence. The reports I completed in this case are truthful and factual, Young said in the affidavit. There were no secret deals or suppressed interviews. Detective Daniels and I, along with prosecutors, had professional standards and moral beliefs that were followed throughout the investigation. Hmm. The storage of original police documents and investigative materials at a detective's home raises new questions about police policy and practices at the time of the investigation. Michael Chitwood, who served as Portland Police Chief during the time of the murder and trial and is now police superintendent in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, did not return a call for comment. Chitwood previously had defended the work of his detectives of course he did. on the Briggs homicide, along with a professional standing of Ames, Young, and Daniel, saying they are all three superb and ethical people. And then it goes into, the story goes into, I'll, I'll put the whole story on our site, but um, it goes into what their policy is or isn't as far as chain of evidence well, my, yeah, and whether my, a detective can take a box of stuff yeah, and bring it to his I house. Yeah, that's what I want to know. Well, I heard an interview with another police expert saying, you know, their notebooks and stuff, their notes belong to them, but they can't take evidence home. And this had a composite sketch, possible weapons in the murder, and all sorts of other stuff. Why did he have that shit? I don't know. I don't know if he was asked that, and I don't know. But some of it is exculpatory, or possibly exculpatory, including the composite sketch, who looks nothing like Tony Sanborn, including having a beard and stuff, and the fact, and also it just shows that they lie. He said they didn't show them lineups or photos. This says they did. So he says they didn't, you know, it shows them interviewing a busload of BIW workers, and there's always been some contradiction. They told Tony Sanborn dozens of BIW workers had identified him at the site, and but the records show they'd only interviewed six or seven, but now it looks like they did interview more, but it doesn't seem like any of them identified I'm Tony sure Sanborn. I'm sure they said something that would, would have, you know, strengthened their case against him that would have, they wouldn't have been sitting in his friggin' attic in a box, you know? True. And so that's our update, and we will have others possibly on um, both this, maybe more on Logamar and on other stuff. Once in a while we'll do, if we feel the updates merit it, we'll do a mini-sode like this instead of a a bonus episode, bonus-sode, instead of, you know, just tacking them onto our regular episode. Also, if you're interested in the Fitbit murder and how it relates to the Connecticut wood chipper murder of 31 years ago, yes. that's going to be up in a few days. So, God, stay yes. tuned. For <laughs> and we'll we'll talk to you guys wood later. Wood chipper. Okay. <laughs> wood chipper. <laughs>